let's dive right in. Exodus chapter 34, continuing our Moses series. Exodus chapter 34, we're going to cover the first few verses this morning. Exodus chapter 34. Says the Lord said to Moses, cut yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds gaze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut the two tablets of stone like the first, And he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, as the Lord commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended, I'm in verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. That is Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. You know, this chapter, Exodus 34, is such a weighty chapter because it's full of foundational truths. Each verse from verse 1 to 35 is packed with so much information and lessons that would challenge us to grow in our walk with the Lord. And so for time's sake, we're only going to go over uh, Exodus 34 verses 5 through 9. And I only read verses 1, start at verse 1 for context's sake, uh, because these verses are extremely interesting um, because God is revealing himself in an extraordinary way. Before I go, I want to tell you all a secret because we're going to start at verse 9. And I know you won't tell anyone because it's just us. When you get to verse 5 and 6, when most preachers get to these verses, and again, this is just between us, no one really understands what's going on in these verses. Don't tell anybody I told you that. But no one really understands what's happening because Moses, and I'm going to read it later, but Moses is experiencing the presence of God and he's trying to share his experience by writing it down in 34 verses 5 and 6. It says, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And verse 6 says, the Lord passed before him. Not too many people know what Moses is talking about. There are several people that have thoughts and opinions of what that may have looked like, but no one can fully understand or describe what Moses saw. And so that puts me in the place to ask the question, why is it in there? Because if no one really can understand what Moses is talking about in this experience, what's the point of it being in the scripture? You know, there are several other experiences that are really indescribable. You just don't under, you just can't grasp it. 
So my question again, why is it in it? Why would God allow Moses to try to explain an experience that no one can grasp? And I believe it's just that. I believe that God wants every person who reads this text to recognize that his presence is that. It is indescribable. He wants every person to understand that his experience cannot be described. So when you take time to unpack what Moses experienced, just about every theologian, every every pastor, every preacher has a different opinion of what they believe happened because no one can fully grasp the presence and the glory of God. It is completely unexplainable no matter how hard you try to explain it. And I believe God wanted every reader to understand that you cannot grasp the presence of God. Why? Because I believe that when you cannot fully describe God, it increases your reverence. You know, we're, we're in a place now, I'm noticing, and I'm mind blown because this year actually marks 11 years of ministry for me. And six of those years in October are here at Coastal. Isn't that crazy how fast time goes? I'm noticing, as I, I kind of have a right to say this because I've been around for a little while now. But, 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 but I'm noticing the older I get and the longer I've been in ministry that where every generation is starting to become common with God. They're trying to get loose and casual with the God of the universe. And, 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 and I get it because I've been in ministry for a while. I've, I've led youth ministries and college ministries and young adults for a few years. And so I understand that, that desire to make God and display God as relatable and someone that we can talk to. But there's a way that we do it without dishonoring his character. I've been to youth services where the pastor of the, of the service will start his opening prayer with, hey, God, what's going on? Hey, yo, God, what's up, man? Come chill with us tonight. I, I, I've heard youth leaders try to get the kids rallied up, and they'll say, let's give a big shout to the man upstairs, to the big man upstairs. There are shirts that are out that say God is dope. We've seen that. There are sneakers that try to put Jesus' face on it, giving us a sense of commonality, and I would even say equality with God. But what many Christians don't understand, and I want to point this out, is that whatever we do, the world tries to follow. So when Christians try to get common with God, the world will try to get common with God. That's why we're seeing singers in the secular world that are making and writing songs that completely disrespect the character of God by mocking the gospel. There are singers that will make music videos of themselves hanging on a cross and mocking the Last Supper. There are, there are singers that are making shoes that are dedicated to Satan himself because here in the church, we're trying to get common with God and make ourselves equal with God. I've heard people say, you know, I don't need to go to church. God will be all right. He knows I love him. He knows I love him. He'll be fine. But, but, but God calls Moses up to the mountain and he reveals himself in a unique way. And the first thing that God wants Moses to know, and that's my first point, is that he is holy. God is not dope. He is holy. God is holy. I'm going to actually do a recap of uh, last week's message from Exodus 33. And I want to read the last few verses because it kind of helps us understand where we're going to move forward. Exodus chapter 33, starting at verse 18. I'm going to read the rest of the way down. 
It says, Moses said, this is Moses' request to God, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and you will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man shall or no man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And I will, and while my glory passes by you, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Once again, we have no idea what that really looks like. That's between Moses and God. But going back to verse uh or chapter 33, where Moses, he asked God to show him the fullness of his glory, his full self. God says no, because no man can look at God and live. However, God goes on by revealing himself to Moses in a unique way. And that's where we go to this morning's passage, because this is God answering Moses' prayer in a very extraordinary way. He not only gives Moses an appearance, something that he could possibly see, but then he also gives Moses something that can be heard. He speaks to Moses about himself and he starts by declaring who he is. He says, the Lord, the Lord. There are other translations that will say the Lord, the Lord, God. Now in Hebrew, that would read Yahweh, Yahweh El. The Lord, the Lord God. Yahweh, Yahweh El. E-L. El means God. That word El is used in other religious groups in reference to their gods. It was a very common phrase, a very common word. But Yahweh is extremely specific because Yahweh means I am. So when God is proclaiming Yahweh or the Lord, the Lord, he is proclaiming I am God. That's the first thing Moses needs to learn. That's the first thing God wants Moses to learn. I am God. Moses had just led the nation who are looking for worldly pleasures for satisfaction. They're looking for worldly pleasures for peace and relief. But God says, I am God. Two chapters before this, the nation built a golden calf because they were giving worship and praise and honor to the creation rather than the creator. But God says, I am God. God, you know, this was a nation that would make Moses so angry that he would be tempted to take matters into his own hands and punish them the way he saw fit. But God says, I am God, not you, I am God, not them, I am God, not the golden calf, I am God. The first thing God wants us to know this morning is that he alone is God. He says Yahweh, Yahweh, which means I am, I am. Does that sound familiar? We've, we've heard that before. This isn't the first time God has said I am, I am. 29 chapters before this, Moses had his first encounter with God. You read the first few chapters of Exodus, you'll see that the same nation that Moses is leading through the wilderness were once slaves to the Egyptians. But in Exodus chapter three, God calls Moses in the form of a burning bush and he commands him to go to Egypt and declare his word to the Pharaoh. Moses asked the Lord, people are gonna ask, who is the Lord that sent me? What name do I give them? 
Because Moses knew, now again, Moses lived in Egypt and he served as the prince of Egypt for 40 years. So he understood the culture. He understood that Egyptians worship multiple gods. They have several idols that they built with several names and several mythological backgrounds behind each god. And so Moses needed a name to give them. And God simply answers, just tell them I am that I am. When they ask, tell them I am sent you. Now, I'm going to admit something to you, another secret. It's just us. Another secret. I didn't understand what God was talking about. As a, as a, as a 21st century modern American, I don't know what that means. Because most of the time, when people say, I am, we expect something to follow after that. When they say, I am, if I say, I am, I say, I am Marcus. So I don't understand why he just stops there because that's just how usually we say it. Something is always added. Something always follow. When the Egyptians introduced their gods, they would say, this is Ra. This is Apis. This is Osiris. This is Isis. That means when they said this is, there was more to be said after that. So when God tells Moses, declare his name to the Egyptians, God wants Pharaoh specifically in every elder and counselor in the Egyptian nation to know, I'm not like these little gods you put together. I'm not like these little idols you built. There is nothing more that can be added to me. There is nothing more to be said once I have spoken. There is nothing more to be done once I have acted. I just am. The Egyptian, you know, in Egyptian mythology, they teach that many of these gods had parents that birthed them. It teaches how many of these gods died because they were defeated by other gods. But the term Yahweh means self-existing, which means God is declaring himself as I am. It means that he is eternal, which means he can't die because he was never born. He, he invented birth. He invented creation, which means creation and birth didn't exist before him. He says, I am. So I don't have an end because I never had a beginning. I just am. I don't need wisdom or counsel. I am. I don't need relief or comfort. I am. I don't need love or peace or affirmation. I am. And so because he just is, it means he needs nothing. And so, you know, I'm, I'm glad to serve a God who doesn't need me. I know that many of us have trouble with that, and sometimes I do too because we want to assist God, but it's amazing to know that we serve a God who has no need of his creation because anyone who needs has lack, and lack is always followed by a lack of trust. One of the reasons why we live in a world with so much heartbreak, and I know it's sin, but sin is displayed through the fact that we give 100% of our trust to people who have 20% of their lives together. We put 100% of our trust to in people that have 50 and 75% and 99% of their lives together. And, and though it seems like 99 is a lot, you know, that 1%, that 1% can leave us scarred and traumatized. That 1% that, that can leave us broken and disappointed. It tears apart families and it destroys relationships and friendship. That 1% of lack can cause us to feel alone even while being in a room full of people because we've built a wall in our hearts so that way we're not hurt ever again. All of us in this room, all of us have lack somewhere in our lives. 
we can't handle 100% of someone's trust because trust is heavy. It is a heavy weight and it has so much weight that it could be easily dropped if it's placed in weak hands. No one on the planet has 100% of their lives together. No one has 100% of their promises kept. All of us are flawed. We all lack something. We lack wisdom, peace, compassion. We lack love. We lack consistency. No one on the planet has all their lives together. But there is one who lacks nothing. 100% is not large enough to grasp how perfect he is. He is God. The angels bow before him. Heaven and earth adores him. He is a mighty and a strong God. And so because he's so strong, I can put all my baggage and all my hurts and all my pains in his hand without worrying if it's too much for him to handle. I can whisper my flaws in his ear without wondering if he'll spread rumors because he's a strong God. He's too strong to gossip and he's too strong to lie and he's too strong to be unfaithful you know when my when my family and if my family were to turn my back and my friends walked away if my spouse goes wayward and my children get rebellious God will wrap his arms around us without me wondering if his love is temporary because he's too strong to change if I seek wisdom he's too strong to steer me wrong he is too strong to fail I can trust him because he lacks nothing and he lacks nothing because he is I'm going to drink some water because if I don't calm down, I'm going to act a fool up in here. I'm going to take me a little break because I feel like preaching today. God needs nothing because he is enough. My question to you, when you look at your life, have you accepted that God is enough or are you looking elsewhere? Are you looking for what seems to be more. Who are you looking to for what you need? When you read all throughout the scripture, you'll see how God used the prophets and the judges and the apostles and the evangelists to do some miraculous things. Made such an impact that those who were impacted, they tried to bow before them and they tried to worship them. But before their knees could even touch the ground, they would stop them because they knew that they were just as flawed as the people they were preaching to. So all of us, we, we, are, we fall short all of us, even as believers in Christ, we have mistakes that we make. But when we put our trust in Christ, he is the one that operates through us. And so that's why Paul says, if the only way you can follow me is because I follow Christ. Okay, so that's something to point out. We put our trust in the God of the believer. Not the person. We don't put our trust in the pastor. We put our trust in the God of the pastor, in the elder, the deacon, the small group leader. That's what God wants us to know. God lacks nothing because he is. He says in Exodus 4, I am, I am. He says that the name, this is his name. It covers his eternal existence. It covers the fact that he doesn't change. Something to point out again. He says, this is my name forever. So it means he's not, he's not that he was or he will be. That means he is. Why is that important? Because that means God's presence, God's word, will never be washed up. It'll never be outdated. It's always needed. Since Adam and Eve, every generation that has developed since the beginning of time, they're always a little different. They see things a little bit differently. Some think they know more than the other. But one thing that every generation has in common is they need an encounter with God. 
every generation needs God's word, whether they know it or not, whether they want to accept it. God says, I am. He starts with, I am, I am. Bring me to the next point. God's name is holy. God's name is holy. The Lord, the Lord. I am, I am. That is his name. Now, during this time, during this time, and all throughout the scripture, names meant something. Names meant something. Parents didn't just give a name to a child because of how well it rolled off the tongue or how well it matched with their, their last name. Names meant something. And in this culture, parents, they would often name their child based off of the character of God, off of a prayer or the current situation that was going on. The prime example is when God tells Abraham, your wife is going to bear a son. She's going to give birth to a son in her old age. Sarah overhears this and she laughs. So her son's name is Isaac. Guess what Isaac's name means? Laughter. Prime example again, 1 Samuel, a woman named Hannah. She had a strong desire to have a child, but she was unable to because God closed the room. So she wept to the Lord and she vowed to dedicate her child to him if he opened her womb. So when she's blessed with a son, she names him Samuel, which means the Lord hears. So names were attached to something or someone very special, whether it was good or bad. And I say good or bad because they were even named after bad situations. The Bible says in, again, later on in 1 Samuel, the Philistines, they invade the nation of Israel. They took and they captured the Ark of the Covenant and they went running. The Ark of the Covenant symbolized the presence of God, the throne of God, the holiness of God, the glory of God. And so while this was going on, there was a woman among the nation who had a son and named him Ichabod which means the glory of the Lord has departed. That's a horrible name to grow up with going to Jewish school. You imagine going to school in that culture saying that my name is the glory of the Lord has departed. That's a horrible name to have, but that's what they, that's, that was, they named their children carefully. So this culture of naming your children carefully was very important. Not only that, in fact, this mindset also was among other cultures. The main character of this account this morning experienced this. In the beginning of Exodus, the Pharaoh being intimidated by the growth of the Israelite nation, he demanded that all the sons, if you are a toddler and under, you are going to be killed. There was a woman who heard this news. She takes her baby boy, puts him in the basket, puts the basket down the Nile River with hopes that this is, this is going to take him away and he can escape the wrath of Pharaoh. God, in all his wisdom, though, instead of taking the basket away from Pharaoh's house, actually leads it to Pharaoh's house. And so while the basket is getting there, it just so happens the Pharaoh's daughter is bathing. She sees the basket. She pulls out this beautiful child and falls so deeply in love with it that she immediately calls that child her son. And she names him Moses, which means I have drawn you up from the water. So names meant something. Names meant something because it was, it was a reflection of one's character. They believed that names and character were linked together. And so when God declares his name, Moses understood based on that culture and based on his Egyptian upbringing that there are attributes and there are character traits attached to this name I am. So Moses is waiting to hear more. Like you said, I am. So let's, what is that? Unpack that. So this is what God's going to do. And that's actually what I'm going to do this morning is unpack the attributes that follow I am. So the first thing God wants us to know about I am is that he is merciful. God is merciful. He is a merciful God. Exodus chapter 34 verse 6, it says the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. 
Now that word mercy, and I'm going to try to skim through all these. That word merciful or compassionate points to a parent who cares for their child, a superior caring for the inferior. It's this definition of mercy and compassion that David is referring to in Psalm 103 verse 13 when he says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. You know, most parents who have children, if you have had children, you have newborns, you understand that there is a sense of protection that comes with that. When my daughter was born, I wanted to demolish anyone who looked at her the wrong way. There's just a sense of protection that comes with having a newborn. And as a parent, you make sure you want to make sure your child is safe. You want to make sure that even if your child is sleeping next to you, you kind of keep peeking over in that bassinet with this sudden urge to make sure that they're okay. Are they still breathing? Are they what's going on? If something happens to the child, whether they fall or they hurt themselves in any way, you drop everything immediately and you run over them over there and give them all their time. You hold them and you nurse them back to health. When you spend time with your child, you do it without letting them out of your sight. You, let, you don't let their hand go because you understand that there are limitations to being a child. God is compassionate and merciful in that he knows our limitations. He knows that we are dust. He knows that we lack. So he protects us and he keeps us safe because he's merciful and he's compassionate. He goes on to say that he is gracious. That's the next point. He is gracious. God is gracious. That word grace is in reference to someone strong towards the weak. Hosea 14.4. It's a prayer and, and it's what is instruction. Hosea says, take words with you. Take these words with you and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously for we all offer the sacrifices of our lips. Second Kings chapter 13 verses 23. But the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and would not yet destroy them and cast them from his presence. Genesis chapter 33 verse 11. Jacob is wealthy and he explains it by saying the Lord has been gracious to us. He has cared for us. The strong is showing his compassion and his love and his grace toward the weak. So when you look at that word grace, you see that that's a theme all throughout scripture from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end. And it's full, shown in its fullness in the New Testament, which we'll cover a little bit later. Grace is God's favor shown towards us. Again, it's the strong showing his favor towards the weak. Remember, all of us, we have lack. We lack something. So if we have lack, that means we don't have much to give God. In fact, we don't have anything to offer God. Yet while we have nothing, God gives us what we need. He still wakes us up every morning. He gives us another day to serve him. He gives us health and he gives us strength. He takes care of us by giving us jobs and a place to stay. And he ultimately reveals his grace by giving us his son to take the penalty of our sin. So while we have nothing to give God, Psalm 103 says that he loads us with benefits, which means that grace that God is giving is something we don't deserve. God is gracious. God is merciful. So now anytime you cover grace and mercy, you have to cover justice because justice is getting what we deserve. I always get, there's a great example that I always like to use and I've heard it several times throughout the church. So great example is, 
You're driving 20 miles over the speed limit after work, prayerfully not after church, but you're driving 20 miles over the speed limit. A cop pulls you over, gives you a ticket. That's justice because that's what you deserve, right? Now you're going, again, you're going 20 miles over the speed limit. You're driving. The cop pulls you over. He gives you a warning after seeing your driving record. Why y'all laughing? Some of y'all, some of y'all, y'all got tickets in here. What y'all doing? He, he gives you a warning after seeing your driving record. That's mercy. Grace is when he gives you the ticket along with some money to pay the ticket. <laughs> then he wipes your record clean. I just want you all to know that will probably never happen. <laughs> but it's great to think about, right? Man. That's grace. That's grace. God is gracious. God is merciful. Then he goes on to say that he is long-suffering. He's slow to anger. That's the next point. God is slow to anger. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is a God of judgment. He is a God of wrath. He is a holy God who hates sin, but the one thing God wants us to know is that he doesn't have a short fuse. Isn't that awesome? He does not have a short fuse. He is patient. Could you imagine if God got as angry with you as fast as you get angry with everybody else? Could you imagine if God had the same level of patience with you that you have with other people? And trust me, I'm included in this. Could you imagine if God cut us off and stopped talking to us the way we do others? If God gave us what we deserve the way we think we should give what others deserve? You know, we get irritated. The fact that God is slow to anger with other people, but somehow it just makes sense when he's slow to anger with us. It's just right. God is slow to anger. He is patient. How do you know this? Because two chapters before this, the nation, they rebelled against God by building a golden calf. Any form of idol worship deserved death. The nation deserved the righteous wrath of God, but he spared them and he still loved them and he still cared for them. All of us, like Israel, have sinned against God. We've messed up too, but God is patient with us because he is a God of long suffering. He's a God of mercy and grace. Then it goes on to say my next point that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So my next point is God is loving and faithful. God is loving and faithful. You know, many of us have a basic idea of what love is. But there are many of us, or there are few of us who can actually comprehend the depth of true love. And it's, it's this incomprehensible love that God embodies. He is the source. He is the genesis. He is the source of love. And it's only by him that we experience true love. God's love, it's, it's based on his supreme desire to glorify himself. Because he alone, as being God, is the only one that's actually worthy of 100% love. And so by seeking his own glory, he pours out his love upon his creation. God loves his creation, and better than his creation, he loves his people. Those whom will take, or, or those who he will take to himself in eternity. So this is one of the greatest truths in scripture, despite who we are, despite what we've done, despite our sin, God loves us 
because we are his. The next thing God wants us to know is he is loving, but he is also faithful. You already wrote that down. He's faithful. Other translations of that is he's abounding in truth. You know, none of God's attributes are isolated traits. They're all connecting parts of his entire being. So this means that God's faithfulness and his truth, they can't really be understood from part of the fact that he never changes. The fact that he is unchanging means that he can never be unfaithful. He can never be untruthful. That's why the book of Titus says that he is a God who cannot lie. The fact that God is infinitely, unchangingly faithful means that he forgets nothing. He never fails to fulfill his plan, nor does he change his mind. He does not take back any promises. And because he is faithful and true, that's why we can trust the writings in Scripture where Paul says all things work together for the good of those who love him. You know, we, we don't always understand God's plan of faithfulness. We don't understand that because sometimes in our, in our limited, finite minds, God's faithfulness might look like abandonment. Sometimes, and that's why the, the, one of the most popular questions, how can a loving, faithful God allow his people to suffer? It doesn't line up. Because in our finite minds, sometimes this faithfulness looks like abandonment. But, but we as Christians, we can take comfort in moments of hardship like these by remembering his attributes, feasting on his attributes found in his word. It's his faithfulness and his truth that give us the certainty in who he is. We have assurance in his promises. So when we go through hard times, we know that God is still unchangingly faithful and true faithfully trusting in who God is, it says that he provides us with a sense of comfort. When you look through the scripture, you can see God's faithfulness and truth and that you can see how it gave people the courage to face the challenges of life head on through the power of God. David, prime example. David is able to stand and at the time he was considered scrawny. He was considered little. This, this little man can stand in the presence of a nine-foot undefeated giant with no fear, knowing that God could give him the strength to take him out because just a little while before this, he was tending the sheep and a bear came and tried to attack the sheep and kill him, but he killed the bear. God gave him the strength to do the same thing with a lion. Funny thing about that is when a bear stands on his hind legs in this area, it was about 10 to 12 feet tall. When a lion stretches his body out all the way, it stretched about 10 to 12 feet tall. So when David looks back over his life and sees that God gave him the strength to take out a 10 to 12 foot beast, he looks at this nine foot human like it's nothing. Because if God can give me the strength to take out something that was greater, why couldn't he give me the strength to take out you? Daniel, thrown in the lion's den for refusing to turn away from his faith, but he gains the courage to face the lions head on. Not only because of what he read, but because he experienced God's faithfulness in his personal life. He had very, three very close friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that were thrown into a fiery furnace for refusing to bow before a golden image that the king set before the nation of Babylon. And yet they went into the fire knowing that even if God doesn't save them, he can. Can, I know sometimes we have prayers and we want God to do certain things, but can we celebrate whether God does it or not? He can do it. 
That's worth celebrating in itself. The fact that he can. So they go into the furnace with this faith and this desire to know that whether we see it, God can still do it. That is the faithfulness of God displayed through the life of his people because they have seen God do it before so they know he can. When you read many of these passages throughout the Bible, you see how certain authors, they quote earlier passages because they've seen God's faithfulness revealed in the passages before, not just by head knowledge, but by experience. God is faithful. You know, there are people that have that, they wrestle with that attribute. They wrestle with the fact that God is faithful and that he's loving. You know, what's fascinating about this encounter with Moses, God starts, he starts with the Lord, the Lord. He's like introducing himself to Moses. He's reintroducing himself to Moses. Why is that important? Because by this time, Moses is worn out. The nation has worn Moses. They are insulting his leadership. They're insulting how he does things. They're insulting his obedience. God tells the people, he tells Moses, set barriers. No one can come up here. That's what he says in verse 3. Nobody can come up here but you. So if nobody's allowed to come up there, Moses is serving as the mediator between the people and God. So when he stands in front of God, he's representing the people. When he stands before the people, he's representing God, which means he has to perfectly display the character of God when he is standing before the people. So that means that anything that he's wrestling with has to be cleaned out on the mountain because when he stands before the people, he has to display the character of God so that they can have a greater relationship and understanding of who God is through Moses. So because Moses is worn out, God has to give him a theology lesson of who he is so that way he can go down with a stronger belief and stronger endurance to face opposition. When you look at your life, this life is challenging. You will face people that just won't like you. They will not like the way you do things. They don't like the way you parent. They don't like the way you do things at work. They don't like the way you handle situations. They will challenge your leadership. They will challenge how you do things. But can you, as a Christian, as a believer in Christ, can you display the attributes of God to them in the midst of opposition? How have you been doing that when you go over your life and you look at how you've been handling challenges? Has your life reflected God's attributes as merciful, as loving, as compassionate, as long-suffering, as patient? God is merciful towards us. The last thing about God's character, God is forgiving. God is forgiving. Exodus chapter 34 Verse 7, it says, he says, he's keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So these attributes of God's mercy and love and faithfulness isn't limited to one generation. That's what he means when he says his name is I am forever. It's not limited to one generation. So it's not just for Moses, but it's for everyone who will come after Moses as well. So this is for people who haven't even been born yet. This means several things. This means God had a heart to forgive us before we were even born, which means that God is never shocked when we sin. He's never caught off guard when we mess up. He forgives the iniquity and the transgression 
and sin. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. Those are three different levels of rebellion against God, and I won't take time to break those down for time's sake. But in a nutshell, God wants us to know whether the sin that we commit is considered small or great, he's ready to forgive us. So are we striving to forgive the way God forgives us? We hate forgiveness. Many of us hate the idea of forgiveness because it seems like forgiveness is letting someone off the hook. Forgiveness comes, it seems like a form of weakness. But forgiveness is not letting someone get away with their action. Forgiveness is accepting that God will handle it. That makes sense. It's accepting that God can handle it. Remember, he lacks nothing, so he can take this into his hands. You giving the person that situation to God is accepting that only God can change them. Only God can give justice. He says in verse 7, he's keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. So God is ready to forgive, but he wants to clear something up. Though he is ready to forgive, forgiveness does not justify wrongdoing. So God says, again, he's keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? So forgiveness is accepting where you stand with the person for the time being and loving them without exceeding certain boundaries. That's forgiveness. If someone were to come over for dinner, you invite them over for dinner, You give them food, they eat, and there's sauce all over the floor. There's crumbs everywhere. They leave a hot mess just everywhere. You would talk to them. You would let them know, okay, we don't, you know, let's let's clean up next time. You bring them back over. They do it again. They do it. You talk to them. They come do it again. Next time, forgiveness is not cutting them off. Forgiveness says, next time we're going to go out to eat. That's what we'll do next. Next time we'll go out for coffee. That's forget forgiveness is accepting the way that person is and giving that situation to God so he can change them. Behind the scenes, you're praying that God would give that person some manners. You're praying that God would work on that person's heart. Right? That's forgiveness. That's a simple example. This section, this verse, it actually ruffles a few feathers because it goes on to say that he is visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So a lot of people hear this and they think that sometimes God will punish the children for what the fathers did or the grandchildren for what the grandparents did. But God holds us responsible for our own sin. We fall short, God punishes us. However, that does not mean that sin does not affect the next generation. It affects the next generation. If a person is so abusive to their spouse and their children that they end up in jail. And while they're in jail, they surrender their life to Jesus. They give their heart to Jesus. They're they're transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and they're ready to preach the gospel. They're on fire for Jesus. They're growing in their relationship with the Lord. They're ready to live for him. Is that person forgiven? Yes, that person is forgiven. Now, God has washed them clean. But if that person is forgiven, does that change the physical hurt that was done to their, those that they abused? The black eye, the busted lip, the hurt, the heart. That doesn't change what happened. 
So that means while that person is growing in their walk with God, God is still healing what took place. To the children, the children might have to still go to counseling. The children, have to go to, they're going to have to heal and walk through years of, of, of hurt. So, so God forgives, but he has to heal. The last thing about this text, as God is forgiving, we're seeing his ultimate forgiveness displayed through the gospel. The fact that he is holy, he is righteous, he is loving, he is merciful, but he created us in his image. He created us in his likeness. But we rebelled against God, seeking to live life on our own terms. And while we were seeking life, to live life on our own terms, sin came into the world and it consumed the world and it caused us to be separated from God. And it put us in the place to deserve nothing but his wrath for the wages of sin is death. But instead of God giving us what we deserved, he gave us like Moses, a mediator. And the mediator came into this world and lived a sinless life, being tempted at all points, but never sinned. He forgave. He showed God's mercy and God's love and God's truth and God's patience with those that seem easily cut off. He still showed love to them. And because he was so sinless, he was able to take the wrath of God upon himself by dying on the cross. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, taking the wrath that we deserve. He was buried, but three days later, he bodily rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. So when you surrender to Jesus as Lord, you are saved from the penalty of sin. Though sin may have influence, it will no longer have dominion. That is the ultimate forgiveness of God displayed through the gospel. I'm going to close with this last point. Our response is worship. I gave you all the attributes of God in this passage. Our response is worship. The Bible says that in Exodus chapter 34, verses 8 and 9, Moses heard all these attributes and he bowed down and he worshiped the Lord in haste. What does that tell us? In a nutshell, when you hear the word of God, the word of God should cause us to worship. The word of God should bring us to our knees in reverence to who he is. Worship is more than just singing. Worship is a lifestyle. It is a lifestyle of honor. It is a lifestyle of reverence. So when we hear these attributes of God, it should bring us to a place where we want to live for him, where we, it grows a greater desire to reflect these attributes in this dark and evil world. It causes us to examine our hearts and ask God to cleanse out anything that's not like us. So what I want to do in closing, I want us to take a few seconds to examine our hearts. I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to come up and lead us in song. I'm going to come back and do the benediction. But right before that, I want to take a few seconds for us to examine our hearts after hearing all of these attributes. What in your life does not display these attributes as a believer? I want to take about 15 seconds for you to just pray and reflect and examine. And I want you to use these seconds to ask God to clean your heart and conform you into the image of his son. I'm going to pray. And then after that, we're going to, we're going to take some seconds. In fact, let's, let's do that now. Then I'm going to pray. Let's take a few seconds and then I'm going to pray.
Father, you are merciful. You are gracious. You are patient. We're mind blown when we look at our lives and we look at how filthy and rebellious we are, how sinful we are. We're so grateful that you're unchanging. Though you hate sin, you don't hate us. And we're grateful that you displayed your love through your son, Jesus. We thank you that he took your wrath upon himself. We thank you for his finished work that gives us access to the throne of grace and the hope of eternal life. We pray, Father, as we live out the rest of our days, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be conformed to the image of your son so that everything that we do displays our belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We give you our thanks. We give you praise and we give you glory for everything that's been said and done. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.